Listening to the coffee hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. I feel like I'm back in college. It's great. Uh, we have a great guest in studio with us today that we get to just sit at the feet of and, and <laughs> learn from. Uh, excited to learn. Stick around, you're going to learn a lot today. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Dr. John Bombaro. He's Associate Director of Eurasia for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod and Chair of the Systematics Department at Luther Academy in Riga, Latvia. Also, because, you know, he has some spare time, Pastor for Blessed Sacrament in Hayden, Idaho. And, and let's see, are you still a chaplain, too? Yes, with the Navy chaplain with the U.S. Marine Corps. So, in his spare time, he's a husband, yeah, dad, probably coaches sports, too, or something else. I'm on the Donald Trump sleep schedule. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Dr. Bombaro, welcome back to the coffee hour. It's nice to be here. It's an honor to have you in studio and have the chance to sit down and visit with you in person. And every other time that we've talked, it's always been online and yeah. we never get to see each other face to face. It's an honor to have you in studio. You were one of the speakers at the recent Making Disciples for Life conference here at the LCMS International Center and spoke on a very interesting topic, mm-hmm. specifically the topic of humanitarianism. What does that mean? What what is today's age of humanitarianism and humanitarian ethics? So humanitarianism, as I was, you know, speaking on this topic, I was saying that it's it's the idol of our age. It is the meta ethic that allows people to self justify according to human standards, <laughs> and it offers therefore the greatest competition to the the article in which the church stands or falls, which is justification by another by the other, namely Jesus himself, who is the only one can justify us because God's standards are perfection. And just as St. Augustine had once prayed and meditated upon, Lord, command what thou willest, but grant what thou commandest. And what he commands is perfection from the beginning, and what he grants to us is perfection, namely Christ's righteousness, but also the full propitiation of our sins. Humanitarianism brings together both humanism, and that is a system of thought with supremely human concerns and human responses to those concerns with no appeal to something transcendent. And then we're also familiar with humanitarian aid, and this Mm -hmm. is care for people and such. Both of those contribute to and are part of a larger ideological framework, namely humanitarianism. And it's that ism part that makes it a bit more nebulous. So you can't go to a particular school of thought. It is more like an ideological malaise. It's sort of like the air that we breathe. It has a set of particular values for human beings and by human beings usually determined by today's elites of what is valued. And not only what is valued, but our participation or at least sympathy with those things, our allegiance with them, whether it be uh, a participation in some kind of humanitarian concern or alternatively virtue signaling our our (laughs) allegiance with that sort of thing or sympathies with it, those tend to be self-justifying. And so there's no need to be justified by the gospel or need for the church. This is for well more than a century been slowly creeping into the church and has supplanted the gospel 
that Jesus and his disciples had preached and has become a gospel of social justice. Now, it comes under a, a, a number of different banners, but we will find it everywhere. It's literally ubiquitous. We'll, you can find it in, in terms of its ethic in IB school curriculums, international baccalaureate uh, school curriculums, where there is no particular religion or no particular culture that's espoused. It's just humanity as such. So let me get at what the, the driving principle is. The, the highest virtue in humanitarian ethics is the human good. The greatest power is the human will. And so the greatest virtue is serving human rights. And none of those things occur outside of a closed universe. Not only a closed universe, a closed world. It's the world of humanity. So there's no reference to the transcendent. There's nothing that transcends. There's nothing outside of this world that comes into it, and there's nothing human that leaves it. So it operates entirely in what uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor called an imminent frame. When I talk about an imminent frame, I want you to think about a closed box, and we're the things in the closed box, and that's all there is. There's, there's nothing that comes into it. So humanity can only aspire to as, as great as itself. And so humanity is determining what are the things that are valued and the things that are, are, are justifying. So it, it, in a nutshell, that's basically humanitarianism. It says that what is natural is good. What is human is natural. Therefore, what is human is good. So the assertion of the human will is a good thing in the service of the human will. That is to say the fight for not the faith, but for human rights is the greatest good. And that's the agenda that you will find at the United Nations, at the World Health Organization, and it constantly tends toward, in terms of another characteristic, toward the general, away from specificities, being Lutheran, being an American, having a border, and tends again toward these generalizations, global citizenship, multiculturalism, etc. I have so many questions. <laughs> that just opened up about 200 questions. I can, and I mean, as you're talking, I am, I am now like listing in my head all of these different ways and different places that I've, I've recognized this now and how it just kind of seeps into and has seeped into so many different areas of our lives. Um, a lot of, it's interesting because uh, certain phrases sound good. Good. Oh, yes. Including multiculturalism. Yeah. How, how, do, we, how do we approach that then I, and identify those, those ways that it has creeped into all of these different facets of, of the media that we consume and, and just living our, our daily lives? Well, part of the problem is that humanitarianism is about the evisceration of the specific, you know, those particularities that give us our individual identity, give us our collective identity. It's constantly moving toward the general, and what that winds up doing is elevate an ethic that all there is is humanity, right? So things like our nation would have to give way its particular self-interest policies for something that's more global, or alternatively, where Christianity runs up against humanitarian ethics, it's supposed to default to the humanitarian ethics. So you can keep your religion as long as you 
keep it private. It's not something for the public square. And and you can do those kind of things at home, but you don't impose them upon other people because human rights. You know that that that's that's where we go with that. So what we find out. What we find out with humanitarianism is it detaches people from the great communities of action, like nations and like churches, for example, that give a specific identity. Here's one such example of where I see succumbing to this humanitarianism impulse, and that is with respect to the U.S. military. Hmm. So 87% of the U.S. military is comprised of enlisted personnel. 12 to 13% are officers. So 87%, massive majority. These are, I don't want to say the worker bees. This is this is the backbone. The, these are the ones that are supposed to be embodying the, the principles and, and putting into practical play the ethics of the nation, right? So 87%. Guess how many periods of instruction that our 87% have during boot camp during indoctrination, and during their A schools as their first military occupational specialty training on the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights? And the answer would be zero, none. Think about Marine Corps commercials now, okay? Marine Corps commercial flashes up, the few, the proud, right? But what are they doing in those commercials? You see them rushing in not to destroy the enemy, but rather bringing humanitarian aid. Like there, there's a different mentality that's going on there. And that's because everyone is your neighbor. The, and the other thing is, again, moving away from specificity to generalities. This is this is how it works. And now, mind you, it runs into all kinds of contradictions and, and, and doesn't stand up <laughs> on its own. But it comes with this sense of moral superiority because it's always more inclusive Right. And, and there it is. It is always more diverse. It is always more multicultural. And therefore, it can look askance upon communities with specific interests like Lutheranism or the Roman Catholic Church or being Latvian or being Polish or Hungarian. Lots of pushback. You know, the, the default is toward the virtues of the European Union, not so much in being specifically Hungarian. Right. So you're seeing a lot of tension in Europe that way. We don't all have Christ in common, but we all have humanity in common, which is the greater virtue then. What is it that we all share together? We don't all have the Holy Spirit in common, but we all have a human will and human desires. And therefore, the highest good is assisting people with respect to these human desires. 25 years ago, the United Nations had listed 30 basic human rights that were universal, and the United Nations stood for those. That list has been expanded now to more than 1,200 human rights. So what isn't a human right anymore, right? So do you see how problematic this actually becomes? It becomes deeply problematic because it's antithetical to those concrete historical identity makers like nation, religion, language, culture, and it eviscerates those things for a nebulous unobtainable end, namely humanity as such. You use the I word, identity. Mm -hmm. We're going to unpack that in just a moment. We need to take a quick break. When we come back from that break, we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with Reverend Dr. John Bombaro, Associate Director of Eurasia for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Chair of the Systematics Department at Luther Academy, Riga, Latvia, and Vacancy Pastor for Blessed Sacrament in Hayden, Idaho. 
We will continue the conversation here on the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Today we're talking with Reverend Dr. John Bambaro. He's Associate Director of Eurasia for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, also Chair of the Systematics Department for Luther Academy in Riga, Latvia, and Vacancy Pastor for Blessed Sacrament Church in Hayden, Idaho. And we've been talking about humanitarianism and the ethics of humanitarianism. You mentioned just a moment ago, you referenced identity. What is the relationship between, you know, what role does identity play in humanitarianism? It's massively important. Whereas before, we used to gain our identity from very concrete markers within the church, holy baptism, right? Who and what we are is given to us Identity is something given and inherited. In humanitarianism, it's something that's chosen, something pursued. And it brings into play the, the tension of being and becoming. I be baptized. In other words, my identity is actually settled, and there's an unfolding of my identity as there is an exploration through the fruit of the Spirit given to me in holy baptism love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the things that I talk to my children about in terms of, you know, exploring their identity, what, what has been grafted into them, you know, bonded to their soul in terms of the spirit. Likewise, concrete markers like being American. So it's important that my children recognize who and what they are by not only confessing the Nicene Creed, I am the baptized, I believe one baptism for the remission of sins, right? No part of the Nicene Creed there, but also saying the Pledge of Allegiance. These are these concrete identity makers that are given to them. So there's a settledness. They're able to rest in this world. And that's part and parcel of what Michael Foucault had, Michel Foucault had identified as part of a disciplinary society set in juxtaposition to an achievement society. Hmm. In a disciplinary society, there are, it opts by operates by the modality of negativity. No, cannot, should not, would not, could not. These are the things that we teach our kids. There are parameters, borders, limitations, fences, right? In an achievement society, it's all about becoming. You've never actually obtained. You're not, you're not ever there. So you're never at rest, which itself is anxiety-producing, you're given to the sort of entrepreneurship of the self in terms of trying to discover yourself. Humanitarianism gives you wide open freedom to all of that because you've been set free from all the specific identity markers. So in an achievement society, the modalities are can. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. So it's all about, again, the will, the liberation of the will. You can be a woman if you're a man. 
You can be of something you want to choose to be. Whereas in the disciplinary society, such that I grew up in, being five foot eight, Coach Petal told me, "You are not playing college basketball. You will not be in the NBA." Actually, I had a pretty good shot, right?、Uh, it, but he was correct. I, I did not have the physical. I needed someone to tell me no. No, you can't. No, you won't. You need to redirect another your energies elsewhere. And so I did. I'm, I'm, I'm ever grateful for the parameters of a disciplinary society. It's one of the reasons I joined the military for discipline. The parameters that were given there. So th- this is where identity comes in. Identity comes in just like this. Those fixed and stable markers that were inherited and given, like our sex. Like our religion, like our nation, are actually being eviscerated by humanitarianism's penchant for the general, and so we're finding notions of anti-Americanism, right? Patriotism and nationalism are almost like dirty words today, and we're literally tearing down the monuments of the past. We're attacking them. When that happens, once we attack the political, the political. Subject. That's tethered to the religious subject. You know who we are in terms of our political standing. Americans is also tethered to our historical and religious freedoms, from which we can proclaim that we are Americans. And I am Lutheran. It, obviously, the allegiances go in a different direction. My first allegiance is to Christ and to His Holy Church, but then also secondarily to our nation. Nation. But what happens when the Constitution itself? What happens to the monuments and actually the historical narrative of our country are subverted for the globalized conversation, for a globalized narrative? How does one actually draw identity from that? And this is why people like Mary Aberstadt says that the principal crisis today is the crisis of identity. We don't have a stable self-identity. Byung-Chul Han, who is a Korean-born German philosopher, he was meditating on this, and he was talking about selfies. Like selfies <laughs> is actually an attempt to stabilize the self in the midst of a world in which the monuments no longer have enduring value. In other words, that we're not getting our our, our values from those things. So think about it: the one stable figure in all selfies is the individual, right?、Mm-hmm. But the background is constantly changing. And and it may even be blurred, especially now with the we have got the the portrait <laughs> element on there, where I am in focus, but you know the leading tower of Pisa, the Eiffel Tower, Statue of Liberty, whatever it may be, that's kind of blurred and drifting in the background. In other words, it's kind of a cry, a cry out for something stable and fixed. That we do have this longing for being, for our identity to be grounded in something. Holy baptism was that. Where we would say that our identity was hid in Christ, in God, and and this is why the church needs to push back against this humanitarian impulse, push back against the social gospel, push back against identity politics, which again is more divisive in in that regard. So, how how do we as individuals knowing knowing and and being able to recognize? Or、maybe I should take a step back. How do we recognize then these things that we need to combat against, and and what 
what can we do as individuals in the church to to take those steps and to, to kind of root that out of our individual lives and the church too? Well, one of the things is to begin to recognize that it's everywhere. So I think about the great revolutions of the West. You know, there is the French Revolution, there's the American Revolution. But what historians of ideas say was the greatest revolution in the modern era was the Kantian Revolution. But so many of us don't even know what that is. We're talking about Immanuel Kant, the the last of the great Enlightenment philosophers who wrote, you know, his magnum opus, The Critique of Pure Reason, right? So this was the apex of human thinking. But what he had done was he separated reality, not only separated, he identified only one reality and then gave some important things, just kind of like a placeholder in case we need these things in order to do some reason. So the only real reality was physical phenomenon, the scientific world, you know, the world of appearances, right? And then the three things he put over here is kind of like placeholders in case we need them to do some reasoning, not that they're real or anything like that, God, essences, and the self, right? So how many of you have actually seen a self? Of course, no one has seen a self, right? Or, or even a mind, you know? Have you, how much is a mind weigh? Have you seen a mind? Do you know that Sarah has a mind? You know, <laughs> I'm not going to answer okay. that. I may be out of my mind. But, that's a, but it's a basic belief that we have, right? Well, anyway, the, the point is this, is that when Kant did that, the concept of God, he now mind you, he was a pietistic Lutheran. He came from the, a, a spirit of pietism, so a devaluation of the incarnation in the sacraments. He said, well, I can't throw out God because I still feel like there's a God. So he renders the whole God notion, not something out there and objective, being, but inward and subjective in impression. That has washed over all of human history so that the principal places where we find objective truth are going to be scientific, technological, medical, those type of things, mathematical. We're all post-Kantian. And we have to become aware of Kant and Kantianism in order to be able to address it. Likewise, Sarah, with respect to humanitarianism. We, we have to actually spend some time studying humanitarianism or we won't recognize that it's actually the very air that we breathe. We think it's so normative. And it's because it's so good, right? <laughs> and it's, it's one of the, the distinguishing features of humanitarianism. It's not like this negative, awful voice. But, you know, who doesn't have a sympathetic heart for people coming across this, the southern border? They have needs and we have plenty. Right. And to put a put a offense up is the ultimate crime being anti-human. Right. What's so, too, with a woman's right to abort? You know, she's got her whole life to give and have to suppress it because of this. that would be anti-human. Right. But this is the humanity that's being determined for us in terms of its value with respect to humanitarianism. So one of the things is we have to recognize is that it is it's everywhere. How, how do we do that? Well, in my paper that I had given, I had mentioned a Pew Research study that came out last month, and it showed that fewer Americans are identifying as religious. I'll read to you some of that. Um, so the those who are self-identifying as specifically Christians were has fallen in the last 10 years from 75% to 63%. 10 years. Massive drop-off. 
So that's a loss of tens of millions of would-be disciples and then their children who would have inherited our holy faith, given their identity in holy baptism, no longer taking place anymore. So what Pew found in 2007, that number of U.S. Christians that outnumbered the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, no religious affiliation, even though they may have been spiritual or believed in God, Christians outnumbered them five to one. Ten years later, two to one. Wow. That's stunning. Okay. But here's the interesting part. It wasn't that this massive exodus that was taking place that all of them were moving from from particularly Protestant Christianity out because the, the drop-off in Protestant Christianity was, was precipitous from 51% in 2011 to 40% described themselves as some branch of Protestantism today. The Roman Catholic Church only had a drop-off of 3%. So he, here's the interesting thing. They were not leaving for another religion. They, they, they weren't going to you know become... Muslims or Mormons or, or anything else, they were just leaving altogether. They didn't need religion because humanitarianism's ethics self-justified. Who could blame them, right? Who can fault your neighbor who actually participates in the homeless shelter more than you do and drives a Prius and eats vegan? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like these are all good things that are lauded today. And they wear fair trade goods. They're actually engaged in the things that are doing good for other people. And that is self-justifying in humanitarianism, which is precisely why they don't need to be justified by another. So humanitarianism comes along and says, you're liberated from this specificity that's going to keep you dependent upon itself. And, and you can forge your own self-justifying existence. Except... There's no transcendent referent. It is only here. What happens at death? But that's now been part of the humanitarian ethic, right? Well, listen, you're not done yet in terms of your good contribution. You can become compost for a tree or a field. And now there's even human composting taking place for farming, for crying out loud. This is so for the the absurd elevation of humanity, there's been a radical devaluation of humanity, a dehumanizing of humanity to the point of animals with the elevation of animal rights to that equal to or sometimes even greater than the human or now to plant life. Hmm. With, with about 30 seconds left, <laughs> one takeaway that, you know, me, the guy in the pew can walk away with. You need to be you need to know for a fact that this is being taught to your children in all public schools. It's part of our public policy that the main outlets for it are going to be ESPN, all things Disney, uh, CNN, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're a parent of children, you need to seriously consider pulling your children out of public school education and putting them into parochial Christian education, preferably Lutheran or Roman Catholic, where there is at least deference to the rule of law and natural law. Why? Because there will be no reference for human goodness with respect to what justifies. The, the thing that you need to take away is this, is that humanitarian ethics plays with an unbiblical anthropology. It has an elevated and optimistic view of, of human ability and essential human goodness that is antithetical to the truth of humanity, that, that we are sinful and that we need to be justified and we need God's Holy Spirit to be truly 
good toward and loving toward our neighbor. Uh, these are the, the critical components. It has a false anthropology, and therefore it has a false solution for what actually justifies. So we need to be conscious of the fact that not only our children, but we ourselves constantly need to be indoctrinated and reminded about the truth of God and ourselves in the world. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. John Bombaro, Associate Director for Eurasia in the, for the LCMS and for Chair of the Systematics Department for Luther Academy, Riga, Latvia, Vacancy Pastor for Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church in Hayden, Idaho. Dr. Bombaro, thanks so much for spending some time with us on the coffee hour. I'm overwhelmed. I need more. I know. So much. <laughs> I wish we had like six more hours. Thanks so much for being our guest on the coffee hour. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Gulseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.